following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Let me ask Tracy to come up, and she's going to read our, our text for this morning, which is actually the entire chapter uh, uh, from John chapter 9. It's the entire chapter. Um, so uh, we have a lot to cover with this. It's going to be fun, and Tracy's going to read it for us. So sit back and relax. John 9. As he walked along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it was someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes. Then I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform much signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind. And they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he tell you? I'm sorry, what did he do to you? 
How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already. You would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins. And are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Well, this is uh, one of my very favorite stories in Scripture. And um, it's a... It's, it's, it's a comedic story, isn't it? I heard you laughing at certain points in that, uh, in that reading. And I think this is one of those stories, some, Bibles in the stories, uh, some stories in the Bible more than others, I think, would benefit from uh, having it presented as a play or a film. Because <clears throat> I think the comedy here could be brought out really well with a skillful screenwriter or a playwright. Uh, the story has one of my favorite people in the whole Bible, Jesus. <clears throat> He's my favorite person. Um, but one of my less, lesser but still favorite people in the Bible is this man who's, who's born blind. Um, I see a little bit of myself in him because he's a bit of a, a wiseacre and he does not like to repeat himself. And if someone uh, continues to press at him, asking him the same question over and over again in different words... He tends to get a little sarcastic <laughs> in dismissing them. Um, and just before he gets beat up, <laughs> he gets out of there. Um, I don't know how much of this is actually my life or not. but um, <clears throat> So this is truly, I mean, it's a sort of a Scott cliche to say this, but I could, I could preach many sermons on this text. I could do a whole series on John 9. I would love to do that sometime. Um, years from now when we're finished with, with going through John this way. Um, but for today, uh, I wanted to treat the whole story as one thing. Because um, I think it's very possible to dig in here and there and pull out specific things. And again, maybe we'll do that someday. But I think the story as a whole 
has some interesting things to show us uh, from the beginning of it to the end of it, and there's some really interesting parallels that we'll see. So what I have done this morning is limited myself to um, talking about three words and three corresponding questions. We've played this game once before, three words, three questions. I don't know if we'll ever do it again, but it seems to work. Um, And that's what I want to try to do this morning. There's three words and three questions, one question about each word. Uh, Of course, you may have more than one question per word, and that's that's by design, but uh, we'll treat at least these three this morning. So the first word I want to talk about is the word sin. It's one of the words we did the last time that we did three words and three questions. And the question that comes up in this passage uh, with respect to sin is, who is a sinner? Who is a sinner? We see this question asked at the very beginning. And who asks it? It's Jesus' disciples, the ones who are following him around, the ones who are, are close to him, who've been through thick and thin with him, who have made it through the many cullings of disciples that happen in Jesus' ministry. They're the ones who ask, when they see this man who's born blind, who presumably has been begging in this spot his whole life, teacher, rabbi, who is it that sinned? Was it the man or his parents that caused him to be born blind? Kind of a weird way to phrase it, if you ask me, because if, if it had been him who sinned to cause him to be born blind, that's kind of a weird uh, time-bending sort of thing. Um, but that's a question that we hear a lot, isn't it? It's very common for us to try to identify which bad things in the world were caused by which sins. Right? You hear this every time there's a hurricane. Some preacher will go on about how it was caused by gay marriage. You hear it whenever there's a terrorist attack, and it's apparently because of abortions. Um, You hear it way more than I wish you did. I hear it way more than I wish I did. The disciples are asking some version of that question. Which sin caused this unfortunate reality? And Jesus corrects them. And I would say, by extension, corrects all of those preachers. (laughs) Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, that's not to say that they never sinned. I'm sure that they they did. We have a kind of an understanding of humanity in Christianity that we're all sinners in need of God's grace. But what Jesus is saying is neither neither one of them did a specific sin that caused the, the poor person to be born blind. He was born blind so that God's works might, might be might be revealed in him. And then you see at the end of the passage, the Pharisees essentially making this same unfortunate connection between sin and bad things. Do you remember at the end of the story? He's trying to kind of, he's sort of needling them because they keep bugging him about the story, asking him to tell it over and over again. And he says, you know, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, But he listens to those who worship him and obey his will. Talking about Jesus. This is why he was able to heal me. And the Pharisees get very upset about this. And they say, you were born entirely in sins. And are you trying to teach us? So again, they're saying, seems to me, if you were so knowledgeable about sin, you clearly wouldn't have sinned yourself blind. Right? 
And then in the middle of the story, we have another way that they're addressing this question. Who is a sinner? The Pharisees are divided over this whole thing. These teachers of the Jewish law can't come to an agreement. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they're trusting in tradition and the law. Those are not bad things, by the way. Tradition and, and rules uh, offer us a lot of good structure for our life, but they're not the, the source of our life. If you look to those things for the source of your life, then you're going to be withered and die very soon. So in the midst of their division, they call the man back again. Right? And listen to what they say. Listen to this statement. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. But you see, God is not glorified by our identification of sinners. God is not glorified when we can go around and point out who is sinning and how. That's a pharisaical understanding. It seems like a, a sort of the, the national pastime of Christendom to identify sinners sometimes. But God is not glorified when we identify sinners. God is glorified when Jesus heals sinners. And for that to happen, what, what, what we need to do is identify ourselves as sinners. I think it's Tony Campolo who has this, this response to the whole love the sinner, hate the sin thing. He says, no, how about love the sinner and hate your own sin? It's a pharisaical understanding to say that God is glorified when we identify sinners, unless it's ourselves. So I would submit to you that unless you're practicing the spiritual discipline of introspection, that the question, who is a sinner, is the wrong question to ask. The disciples asked it. The Pharisees asked it. The Pharisees thought they had their answer. But it's the wrong question to ask. So the first word is sin, and the first question is who is a sinner? The second word is believe. And the corresponding question is very similar to the first corresponding question, which is this. Who is a believer? Well, the text is actually pretty clear about this in a couple of different places. Right in the middle, it tells us, John tells us in verse 18 that the Jews, uh, now in this, when he says the Jews, it's not like some um, conspiracy theorist talking about the media. Um, he's referring specifically to the, the Jewish leaders, right? Um, so the phrase the Jews is kind of like, ooh, that sounds anti-Semitic in, in English in the 21st century because it usually is if somebody says that phrase. In this context, that's not what's going on. He's, he's speaking specifically about these particular Jewish leaders. Um, the point is here, the question is who is a believer? Well, the, the Jewish leaders are not. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that the man had been born blind and had received his sight. Now, eventually, they sort of came to believe after they interrogated the parents. 
and that sort of that, that forced them to change their worldview a little bit. But initially, they did not believe. But who is the believer in this story? You see it right at the end. After the Pharisees have driven this man out of the synagogue, Jesus goes and finds him. And when he found him, verse 35, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Using this phrase, the Son of Man, which is one of his favorite ways to identify himself, which comes from the prophetic writings of Daniel, um, this apocalyptic kind of messianic term, the Son of Man. He's, uh, he's appropriating that for himself throughout this gospel and the others. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind, formerly blind man says, Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. Jesus had very good grammar. (laughs) You or I would have probably said the one speaking to you is him, but that's not how English works, is it, kids? Did you miss what happened in that response that Jesus gave him? What does he say to the man? When he says, Who, where is the Son of Man? You have what? You have seen him. What a remarkable thing to say to a guy who was blind two days ago. Not only have you heard him speaking to you, which would have been the way that the blind man formerly had to interact with the people in his world, but you have seen him. And the man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And it is only after the man says that he believes and worships Jesus that Jesus pronounces him fully sighted. Did you notice this? After the man says, I believe, and worships Jesus, is when Jesus says, verse 39, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see. And those who do see may become blind. So the second word is believe, and the second question is who is a believer? And the one who is a believer in this story is the man who was formerly born blind. And that transitions very nicely but counterintuitively into the third word this morning. The third word is work. Um, Now, Those of you who know the whole Protestant Catholic argument might be setting the ball on the tee right here, right? Because we're talking about belief and then we're talking about work. But hang with me for a minute. Where does the word work appear in the passage? Well, it only appears in the beginning. It's right after Jesus has corrected this erroneous retribution theology kind of nonsense, saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned that he was born blind. Why was why was he born blind? so that God's works might be revealed in him. And then he goes on to say, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Uh, If you have an NIV translation, it says we must do the works, but the Greek word for work is present in both the uh, verb and the object of the sentence. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And so the question that we would want to ask ourselves in order to understand and unlock what's going on in this passage is fairly obvious, I think. It is, what is the work of God? 
What is God's work? By the way, linguistically, those two phrasings of that question mean the same thing. In Greek, as in uh, French and probably some other languages that I never studied, um, you make a possessive with the preposition of, right? So in English, we can say Scott's phone, apostrophe S, Scott's phone. Um, In Greek and in French and in some other languages I probably haven't studied, it's the phone of Scott, right? This will become important, by the way, whenever we get to John 17, uh, if I don't have to retire before then. Um, when, when Jesus is praying for his disciples and he, he says, I pray that they would be in the world, but that they would not be of the world. And this goes on to like all kinds of Christian bookstore page a day calendars, right? You got to be in the world, not of the world. In the world, not of the world. What does that mean? Well, I think it means you don't listen to Led Zeppelin and you don't like smoke cigarettes, right? <laughs> No, what that means is you can't be in the world, you're going to be in the world, but you can't belong to the world. It's a possessive structuring uh, grammatically, right? All right. So what is it that is the work of God? What is it that's God's work? And here it's not talking about the work that God does, but what is the work that people who follow God must do? What is God's work? Well, we don't have to guess. If we're just reading John 9, we might be left to guess, but um, we have already gotten through the first eight chapters of John, and in the sixth chapter of John, Jesus answers this very question. It's chapter 6, verse 29. I'm going to bring it up here. If you want to look it up, it's on page 867 in these red Bibles. Jesus answered them. They had asked the question, what must we do to perform the works of God? This is the question we have, right? What are God's works? The works of those who would follow God. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. We just sang these words, didn't we? The labor of God is to trust. We probably sang them in better pitch than I just did there, but that's why we sing that line. It's right out of John 6. The work of God is to believe, to trust, right? Now, you could be forgiven for interpreting that concept to mean the work of God is to make myself believe something that I have a hard time believing. The work of God is to push out um, anything that challenges my faith. The work of God is to reject uh, science when it disagrees with Uh, my interpretation of the creation stories. Uh, The work of God is to um, screw my brain up into this place where I can make an intellectual ascent that maybe I'm not actually ready to make. You could be forgiven for interpreting the phrase that the work of God is to, to trust in the one who sent him or whom he has sent. I don't think that's what belief means at all. I don't think that's what faith means at all. For me... Faith is trust. The labor of God, as the song says, is to trust. And how do we provide evidence that we trust Jesus? We do what he says. So in the case of the man, when Jesus made the, the spit mud and stuck it on his face, did it heal him instantly? No. What did Jesus do? What did he say? He said, now that I've put this uh, magic spit mud on your eyes, (laughs) you have to get up and go 
By the way, he's blind. You have to get up and find your way to the pool of Siloam, which means scent, and wash in that particular pool. And it is only when the man obeys Jesus and trusts him enough to get up and go. Now, this is not an easy thing to do, probably. Um, His livelihood is his location. He stands or kneels or sits in this particular spot begging for whatever anybody will provide to him for charity. And that's how he makes his hay, right? That's how he earns his living. It's the only way he can get any money in the ancient world. Jesus is telling him, abandon your spot that is the source of whatever comfort in life you have and go somewhere else and wash off this magic spit mud. And it's only after the man obeys and trusts Jesus enough to go and do what he says that he regains his sight. So when it says the work or the labor of God is to trust or to believe or to have faith, I think what it means is that you trust Jesus enough to say, I trust that you are who you say you are and I am going to get up and take steps in the direction that I hear you calling me or sending me. That's a very different way of understanding faith or belief than the one that says, I just have to make myself believe it. What if we had a faith that said, I don't understand everything. I don't really get how do we interpret a story of creation that, that takes six days and a day of rest in light of the fact that science tells us the world is billions and billions of years old? How do we make sense of that? Now, I think there are ways to make sense of that. Obviously, you know that I think there are ways to make sense of that. But, for example, how do we make sense of that? I don't understand. If you're a person who hasn't reconciled that and it's causing you trouble, I do not think it is your job as a person of faith to figure that all out before you call yourself a believer. If you put that kind of restriction on your definition of your own belief, you will never come to believe you will never come to be a believer. The answer to the second question, who is a believer, will never be you. But I think if we had our definition of faith mean, I trust Jesus just enough to do this one crazy thing that I think he's asking me to do, you might, you might see some amazing things begin to take place in your life, which would help Um, remove a lot of the anxiety about some of those intellectual disconnects that you have. And by the way, let us remember that the only time in this story that Jesus identifies a sinner is at the very end when he identifies the Pharisees as sinners. And why does he say that they remain in sin? He says that they remain in sin because they claimed that they could already see. The only way that Jesus answers the question, who is a sinner, is by identifying the people who said that they could see on their own and they had it all figured out already. Surely we're not blind. And he says, you don't get it. If you just admitted that you were, you wouldn't be in sin. But because you have said we see, 
your sin remains. So I would suggest to you today that not only is it a better way to activate real faith to trust Jesus and to move as compared to trying to, to figure something out intellectually, but it also is the way to save yourself from the sin that really does plague your life. Is to say, I'm just as blind as the next person. And the only sinner I'm going to identify from here on out is me. Because we don't get points for naming them. And all I can do is trust. That is the work of faith. To trust in the one that God sent. Let's pray. God, thank you for this wonderful story in the Bible for how it challenges us and confuses us and surprises us and makes us laugh. For the example of faith that we see in this man who was born blind, may we follow his example. May we recognize our own shortcomings, our own spiritual blindness, enough to have humility, to know of our need for your Son, Jesus. May we trust Jesus enough to move and to go where he is sending us or calling us or leading us or guiding us. And in that act of trust, may we come to know truly how to see as the man himself did when he believed and worshipped Jesus. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one very significant activation of trust in Jesus that we practice every time we come together for worship is to take communion together. Um, We have an open table at Artisan. We don't require you to be a member of our congregation uh, or of any congregation. We simply say that uh, if Jesus were offering you this meal himself, saying, here is my body which is broken for you, here is my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of sins, if you were to to trust him enough to say, yes, I want part of that, then our table is open for you this morning. We will continue to sing songs together as we partake in this beautiful, ancient Christian ritual together. Um, if, if you're not in that place spiritually today, uh, first of all, thank you for being here. We are so glad that you are, and we, we always have seekers who aren't quite sure where they're at with this, and uh, no one is going to write down your name or look at you funny if you just choose to stay in your seat and think and meditate and pray and ponder these things. Um, You could read through the passage again, whatever is comfortable for you, but please don't let any sense of your own shortcoming prevent you from coming to this table because this table is all about Jesus' call on you despite and even because of your shortcomings. So if you are trusting him, come to the table. Receive his body and blood as food for your souls, as an act of unity with each other and with all Christians around the city and the world and throughout time. Let's continue to worship him in whatever way he may be calling you this morning. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.